Okay. All right. Good. Well, then I'm ready if you're ready. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Well, let me turn that down and this microphone down, or at least the speakers down. I have not done a Roddy Mysterioso since last year, Paul. So So, you just got to redo the learning curve. Yeah, I guess so. I'd say that lead-in is is probably way too long. (laughs) Yeah, I think I should shorten that one up. I've got to... uh, Yeah, you're right. (laughs) I'll so you can chop up. pieces out of it and just every now and then throw them in as a kind of a sidebar throughout the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll think, I, I think I will shorten it up. I mean, I've got, um, you know, just out of habit, I have a big long intro so that I can um, adjust things and do any last minute things I need to do. Because while I'm playing the yeah. intro, I'm kind of looking at all my signals and all the everything that's going in my levels and all that. And so I've given myself, I should know how to do that by now. You're right. We met uh, Paul Smith, Dr. Paul Smith. Uh, we met finally, although I'd known about you for years, uh, at the Archives of the Impossible conference here in Houston in uh, February, I think. March. Was it March? Okay. Mm-hmm. It just seems so long ago now. Um, and we just, I think we started talking because I was giving you a ride back from um, lunch, or from dinner. <laughs> Sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, talked a bit more and you said, 
you asked if I was still doing the show or um, I, I think you did and I or maybe I did and I said you want to come on you said sure um, we were going to do it earlier and then you had a um, was it a detached retina yes annoying as heck yeah how are you doing now is it okay well it's about as good as can be expected you know I won't give you the whole health rundown but that ice got problems anyway I had some I had issues with it even before that happened it's like All right. it just keeps piling on yeah you said it was the bad eye luckily it wasn't the good eye yeah yeah um I tried to edit down your um intro and CV here but and it's like four paragraphs even with that should I read it or do you want to do your own oh it's you know, I'll leave something out. I mean, okay. not just leave something out, but I'll probably leave out important stuff. So, yeah, okay. I then don't I'll... know if you have to do the whole four paragraphs. No, well, know. I just took it off your site and I kind of squeezed it down a little bit. Uh, um, well, I'll start reading. If it gets too uh, uh, pedantic or whatever it is, then you tell me. You know what? That's enough. Dr. Paul Smith. If, if I start snoring, that will be your cue. Yeah, or the yeah, or I lose my place. Um, Dr. Paul Smith is the longest serving controlled remote viewing teacher active today. He began his career as a remote viewing instructor in 1984, served for seven years in the Stargate remote viewing program at Fort Meade, Maryland. Starting in 84, he became only one of five Stargate personnel to be personally trained as remote viewers by the legendary founders of remote viewing, Ingo Swan and Dr. Harold E. Putoff at SRA International. Um, He's the primary author of the government RV program's CRV, Controlled Remote Viewing Training Manual, and served as theory instructor for new personnel as well as source recruiting officer. What's that? Like sources that you would use for info? Basically, no. Basically, I was the guy that recruited the new viewers. Okay. Uh, you know, new candidate viewers. Okay. Yeah, that's how, that's how I read that too. Unit security officer and unit historian. Because I think somewhere in your bio you said... <laughs> I was the one that seemed to be able to write the best, so they just assigned all this stuff to me. Um, He went on to teach controlled remote viewing to such well-known remote viewing personalities as Lynn Buchanan, Mel Riley, and David Morehouse, two of those who I've interviewed already before, years ago. Um, uh, He's credited with over 1,000 training and operational remote viewing sessions during his time with Stargate. Um, uh, After enlisting the Army in 1976, he took Arabic training and was commissioned as a military intelligence officer out of officer training. Um, Besides his tour at Fort Meade, his military assignments included Arabic linguist, electronic warfare operator, strategics intelligence officer Mm -hmm. for a special operations unit, Mideast desk desk officer, tactical intelligence officer with the 101st Airborne during Desert Storm and Desert Shield, um, strategic intel officer uh, in the collection directorate of the uh, DIA and chief of the intelligence and security division for military district of Washington from which he d- retired in 1996. Good. I'm over halfway through it. <laughs> I can see your intro is too long. My, my bio is too long. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul has a BA from Brigham Young uh, University in Mideast Affairs Art and English Masters from National Intelligence University with concentration in the Middle East and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas at Austin. Which or work- as my wife says, I majored in unemployment. Yeah, I mean, that, any philosophy degree, I think. <laughs> I majored in art history, so, you know, here we sit. Um, uh, he's the author of Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, America's a Psychic Espionage Program in 2005 that came out, as well as The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, Secret Military Remote Perception Skill Anybody Can Learn. 
Um, and uh, besides serving as president of remote viewing instructional services, which is what you do right now, company offering uh, RV training courses to individuals and small groups. He also works as a remote viewer and RV consultant and is founding director and past president of the uh, nonprofit International Remote Viewing Association, a life member of this American Society of Dowsers, which I'll ask you about a little bit, mm-hmm. and a professional member of both the Parapsychological Association and the Society for Scientific Exploration, and also associate editor of their journal. There. There's the whole yeah. introduction as I've pared so it down. Now that we're done with the interview. Okay, we'll see, see you, you later. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got to cut that down. Uh, well, for, for I could have cut purposes. it down more. But yeah, I mean, that's about half of what your CV was online. So I just tried to cut it mm. down a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah we, uh, we met at that uh, 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 Archives of the Impossible conference. Um, yeah, what, do, is there... Is there anything you recollect about that? You know, that uh, good, bad, indifferent, uh, what were your favorite parts? I don't even remember being there. I mean, I turned 70 this year, so you know how that goes with your synapses. But no, no, yeah. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was an excellent uh, conference. Uh, real kudos to to Professor Jeff Kripal, that's how he says it. Yeah. Um, he did just an amazing job, he and his staff. Uh, if any of them listen in, I thought that they did an amazing job. Yeah, it was very slick and smooth and and uh, flowed very well. And the content was great too. Yeah, they they um they chose very carefully who they had speak and uh, all the presentations I enjoyed them all. Um there 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 were a few where I had certain it's like wait, what a sec- wait, wait wait a second, what? What are you saying? Yeah, there's I mean <laughs> there's you, always going to be have, you got to have contrast, you know, just to keep things interesting and Yeah. And some things are less interesting than others, but overall, I thought they did. They went, worked really hard to try and make it a nice, balanced, uh, well thought out event. Yeah, Ed May gave a really good presentation. What did you think of that one? I think you stood oh, up I after it. Was good. It. Yeah, you stood up after it and talked. I've actually you, there's proof you were there because I took a picture of you asking a question. I think because we were sitting <laughs> well, behind. I, remember me. I was on one of the panels. Yeah, and you were on one, one of the panels too, obviously. Yeah. So everybody can see that. Yeah, I mean, Ed and I have lots of differences of opinion, um, but I thought what he presented there was awesome. I thought he did a great job. So. Yeah, it's just basically a history of remote viewing and um, basically um, uh, parapsychology research into uh, remote sensing, I think, um, with emphasis on... Oh, there was a lot of stuff to do with uh, colleagues in Russia, which I thought was really amazing, considering what was going on and is going on now when we were there, that... that the Ukrainian invasion had just happened like just a couple started. days before. Yeah. Well, now I just want to correct you. It's not remote sensing. Remote sensing is satellite, uh, like okay. radar and that Sorry. kind of thing. It's remote viewing. And ultimately it probably really should have been called remote perception. Right. So. Exactly. There is a, you know, issue when I'm doing interviews where I have to get the terminology right. And sometimes people get offended and sometimes they're like, well, actually it should be called this. I'm like, okay. Well, you're, yeah, at least you're retrainable. So we're good. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> uh, one thing that wasn't in your CV was, um, and I remember talking to at least uh, Joe McMonagle about this sometime in the 90s when I interviewed him. Um, I asked him, there's, you know, what had happened in childhood to let you know that maybe you had some sort of... Uh, uh, sense of things that other people didn't. Um, and he, he talked about his twin sister and how they both shared um, kind of presentiment uh, uh, abilities. 
which kind of scared them, and it was scared out of his sister, but he kept on with it. So um, did you have any of that in, in your childhood? I had you went, nothing. I really? had no clue I was psychic before August of 1983 when they came to recruit me. They recruited you. No why clue. then? Well, they weren't looking for people who were psychic in the classic sense because mm. they found sometimes those guys were too hard to work with. <laughs> and, and, and oftentimes they found that they're, their reputed abilities weren't nearly what they claimed, right? So yeah. what they were looking for is people who'd had success uh, in other domains that indicated that they could be good at, at remote viewing and being psychic or whatever. So they were looking for, for military officers at the time because it was a classified position. It had to be military officers and a few enlisted guys who um, were well accomplished in their careers, who... Um, had gone through all the wickets that you have to go through to become professionalized in the military. Right. Who had, um, you know, seemed to be above average intelligence, which this is arguable, but generally people in the intelligence community are a bit above average because, because they have these, uh, you know, they have uh, certain parameters that you have to get through to become an intelligence yeah. officer or enlisted guy. Yeah. Yeah. Lateral so, thinking, um, et cetera. Yeah. And then the final thing was, that you also had to be interested or involved in some kind of creative pursuit, right? Mm. So because they they the, all the other stuff is kind of left brain stuff. Yeah, they knew the right brain is important. So if you have a military officer who's also uh, an artist, even if it's just on the side, that's an indicator, right? That they might right. be able to do this, right? Because they'd been empowering their their right hemispheres mm -hmm. to speak roughly. Yeah, exercising I, it. Yeah. And I had majored in studio art. Mm. Um, I like to uh, do creative writing and send it off and get rejected by editors. Um, <laughs> I'd, I've been playing guitar for about 20 years by then. And uh, there's something else I did. And I can't think of. Oh, languages. Foreign languages are an indicator, too. And I was fluent in German and I had uh, I had been an Arabic linguist and studied Hebrew at BYU. So, so I kind of it, I was fit the profile. Said, yeah. Well, even, even went beyond it. So they said, we can't not try this guy out <laughs> and see how well he can do, you know? So um, that's what they, they didn't care if I had been psychic up to that point, they were going to take care of that. It was to make sure I had the raw materials that they could then enable, you know, through training. Yeah. Because, um, I think that, uh, yeah, if you're in the military, automatically it just people assume that you don't have those abilities or, you know, yeah. nobody in the military is uh, creative. Well, of course they are. It's just like the general population. In fact, you want particularly combat officers to be very creative. Mm. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the Ukrainians are doing as well as they are right now is because they've been trained by NATO and, and the NATO model. So the Russian model is a stovepipe thing where right. the officers tell you what to do and that's what you do. Right. You don't deviate from that. Even if the plan gets all screwed up, you still do what you were told to do. The the NATO and particularly the American forces are trained that if the plan gets screwed up and there's no officers, no officers around, then you start developing your own plan. You know, so yeah. you have to be creative. Yeah. Think on your feet to think on it with mm -hmm. a changing situation and all that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it saves lives. If you I mean, you, we can see that going on in Russia. I never really thought about it that way, but exactly. Um, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, David, actually, uh, Metcalf, I said, what, what should I ask Paul? He said, ask about Ingo. <laughs> That's a broad subject. <laughs> yeah, it is a broad subject. In fact, uh, Ed May told, every time I've heard people informally tell stories about Ingo Swan, they're, it's like talking, it's like talking about a, um, uh, an incredibly great rock musician, except personally, they're very difficult to get along with sometimes. <laughs> that, can, that, that was, yeah, yep, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so how um, how did you happen to get involved with Ingo and, and Hal Putoff? And was, was that with Russell Tarr yeah. too, or was he, he at SRI no, anymore? Russell was actually gone by then, by the time I got involved. Um, oh, because it was Russell early 80s, later. yeah. Yeah, so Russell Russell left SRI in 1982, mm-hmm. and I started my training in January 1984. So that's when I met Ingo. That's when I met Hal, um, and I met them just because I was recruited to this program. Um, and they said, "Okay, well, eventually you're going to do, do training in California, and and uh, and you'll meet Ingo Swan." And there's all kinds of stories about him they told and. And 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 Hal put off on all these guys. One of the requirements was I had to read Mind Reach, which was by Put Off and Targ, mm-hmm. uh, book Mind Reach, which is really the classic. I mean, that was the first real remote viewing book out of the uh, out of the start. I mean, from the beginning. Um, and um, yeah. in some yeah. ways, and it wasn't classified. <laughs> yeah, Obviously. well, there's an interesting story about that. I don't know. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's totally you know, that's this, right. Yeah, so so the program was started in nineteen late seventy two, early seventy three, when the CIA um, needed some needed someone to pursue this because the Russians were actually spending hundreds of millions of dollars in what we would consider paranormal research. Yeah, people get after the U.S. government because we spent roughly twenty five million on this over twenty three years, so about a million a year, right? Yeah, the Russians had already spent about $200 million, not rubles, but dollars, mm-hmm. by the time this program, the program got off the ground in the 70s. So, you know, by order of magnitude, they were way ahead of us in terms of expenditures um, and and were the whole time. You know, we were actually dropping the bucket compared to what they were. So um, anyway, um, so the CIA started the program and they – yeah, it's, I don't know how much to tell you. Let, let me start at the beginning. So Putoff was doing some, uh, is, Hal Putoff, he's a, he was a, a laser physicist. He'd worked for, he'd actually been in the Navy as an intelligence officer and gone out to Stanford, got a PhD in physics and and stayed there. Mm-hmm. Uh, got hired by what was then Stanford Research Institute. Uh, it's called SRI International now because as Stanford Research Institute was doing nuclear weapons research for the military. And uh, this was the time with all the campus unrest in the in the '60s and early '70s, and and um, so the student vibe made him sp- get rid of it. <laughs> it made Stanford oh. University get rid of it, and it became a standalone enterprise. And, and put off was working for them, and he was doing some essentially fundamental um, quantum level research. And he thought he might be able to integrate his lasers and some remote. You know, yeah. Okay. So this just becomes grows in the telling, right? Yeah. So no, that's named- fine. I did not know. I mean, I knew this yeah. in aggregate, but not really at this yeah. detail level. So okay. I, I want to hear it. So it doesn't matter what the audience one- wants to hear. I want to hear it. <laughs> okay. Good. The heck with them, right? No, no they'll probably like it too. So put off wanted will. to research tachyons, which are high, uh, theoretical particles that can go backwards in time. 
And so far, as far as I know, no one's ever actually found the tachyon. It's just built into the theory. Um, right. In some ways, it's almost hypothetical. But yeah. so he wanted to research it's that. Placeholder. And he, and he, well, yeah, it's probably a little more complicated than that. But still, well, it's it, it's know. a name for something that has an effect, but you can't really see what the thing is. Kind of like so dark far. matter. Yeah, that's probably a good way of talking talking about it. Yeah. So um, anyway, he he uh, discovered this research by Cleve Baxter, and Cleve actually was one of the pioneers of polygraphy of, of lie detectors. And was a consultant to the CIA and was that until into his 80s. He was yeah. one of the foremost experts in the world on polygraphy. Well, yeah, and the plant guy, too. This. Say again? He, he did research on uh, plant, uh, plant, uh, plants it's and their, their success. Yes. Uh, That's where I'm going. Sensitivity, That's where I'm going. Yeah. yes. So one day he hooked up a plant to a polygraph and then threatened to chop off a limb or leaf or did chop off a leaf. And the plant reacted. And then he discovered if he if you put a, a neighbor plant off a ways and threaten that plant, there was some kind of non-local link because the plant that was hooked up the lie detector still reacted, right? And so um, Putoff heard about that and thought, well, maybe this involves tachyons in some way. So he was going to do lasers and plants and all kinds of stuff and, and then try and measure it. And it's, it's more complicated than I can explain. Um, and Baxter actually been doing some research with Ingo Swan. And uh, and then they were together at a party, and and Baxter happened to show Ingo a letter, or Ingo accidentally saw it somehow or other from Putoff, asking Baxter for support. And Ingo contacted Putoff and said, "Hey, uh, why would you want to work on plants? They can't tell you anything. You should be working with people like me because then we can report what our experiences are." Yeah. <laughs> and Putoff at that time didn't have the time of day to, you know, on a, he didn't want to give the time of day to a psychic. He just was really dubious about them and, and justifiably so. I mean, there's yeah. plenty of, 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 uh, well, would we'll just be kind and say fringe players in the psychic world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and, and ha- as he tells the story, Hal says he, he, uh, he wouldn't have given, he wouldn't even pay any attention to this, except Ingo sent along some science papers in which he had participated in some experiments that had produced real results conducted by a professor at the city college of New York. It's now the city university of New York, I think is what it's called. Uh, And those papers looked like they were, they were rigorously done reported interesting results that might actually be leverageable. So he ended up bringing Ingo out. The two of them did an experiment on a quark detector uh, where Ingo was able to both to affect it at a distance. And this was, this was in the Varian Science uh, Physics Building at, at Stanford Research or Stanford University, supervised by the postdoc whose job it was to to manage the quark detector, and so it was very carefully done. And Ingo was indeed at a distance able to affect the output of the of the quark detector, and by the way, uh, sketch and describe the internal components of it, which had never been published, and he had no inkling of. Yeah, and so that got the CIA's attention. So that's prologue. The CIA got inter- interested because they discovered the Russians were doing all this kind of stuff. And so they started, that's what started the remote viewing programs. That they, they gave, first of all, a small financial contract to SRI to research the stuff. And then proceeded from there. Um, the contract went on. The CIA got out in 75. Uh, Air Force took it over. Then after the Air Force, DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency and the Army, we're doing parallel programs and then DIA 
consolidated the whole effort and, and it went on from there. So I've told you all that backstory and I think it was on the way to answer a question, which of course I have now totally forgotten. Um, the question was, how did you meet Ingo Swang and how put off and how oh, right. develop okay. and help yeah. develop the training program after that? Because, you yeah. know, when you first got over there, you got introduced to them and Ingo was basically doing the training, right? Yeah. Or developing so, it. He was. Yeah. So, so what happened was um, they were just using what I call generic remote viewing. Other people call it free form remote viewing. Uh -huh. There's various terms for it, but essentially you put somebody in an environment where they, if they're going to get anything, they had to be psychic. Uh, and, and so they kind of each developed their own kind of idiosyncratic way of doing it. They, they, they were all pretty similar, but they varied somewhat in how they approached it. Um, but uh, <laughs> the army said, well, we can't just go around finding random people to do this. We yeah. have to be able to, <laughs> to get people who are clearable and, and hopefully are still actually already in the military. And so they asked SRI to develop a training program to help to convey what they had learned by this time. This was roughly not quite 10 years after the program had started, but close. Um, you know, what had been learned at SRI to that point? They wanted it incorporated and, and, and essentially structured in a way that you could pass it on as quickly as possible, but still in a quality way to your average soldier you know yeah uh, obviously weren't average soldiers but you know just in general um and so that's what i teach now called controlled remote viewing presently called controlled remote viewing or crv that's where that developed with swan and put off and when swan was the main so he was the one that was actually having the experiential uh, stuff that that they and they you know they looked at the laboratory stuff they did some of the that them that at that time it was called subliminal perception research. They looked at the, the, uh, the split brain research. They looked mm -hmm. at, uh, Oh, I can't even think of all the stuff uh, that they did, but they looked at all the, the relevant resources available there. Uh, in fact, formed uh, uh, relationships with a lot of the people who were doing that research at the time. Uh, they're kind of household names now in, in that domain, not of course in everyday life, people don't know who they are, but, but in those domains, they're 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 almost legends, the yeah. ones they worked with, right? Mm -hmm. And they created the CRV process because the army wanted a training program, and it wasn't exactly a training program, but but it was. It was used that way, and um, and so I was brought in when they needed people to do it, right? So they had a contract, a training contract. They needed people to train, and I got recruited along with uh, two other people. Uh, who were in, you know, yeah, who, who got brought in. So, Was one of those Tom McNear? Because you mentioned him in something you wrote about. I don't know if I'd ever heard of him, but it sounds like he made a really big contribution to the, yeah. to the training so, and the development. Yes. Tom actually was a, had been recruited before we were. Mm -hmm. He and another guy, um, uh, God, I should have gotten more sleep last night. Rob Cowart. The other nine, Rob Cowart, two captains, uh, were recruited into the program. Rob got cancer and got medically retired, right. but Tom stayed on. Tom uh, went all the way through all stage six, six stages of the program. And Ingo, up until the day he died, called uh, Tom his best ever student. Mm. You know, I wish that was my honor, but Tom clearly <laughs> was, was, he was, he was an amazing, still is. 
an amazing controlled remote viewer. And, uh, and so, yeah, Tom was among us. He was kind of our older brother, if you want to call it that <laughs> in, our, in our program. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was there before you. So he, he, I guess through the testing and the, the protocols they developed, that's, that's what you guys were taught when you got there. Did it, how much did it morph after you got there? So the other two folks uh, with me were Bill Ray and uh, her, uh, her name was Charlene Cavanaugh at the time. She was a, a GS uh, level employee. Mm-hmm. Um, she later married a general and her name became Charlene Schufelt. So that was cool. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, Ingo, the only time he ever was at Fort Meade, he came to her wedding because they got married in the base chapel. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So there are two of us. And later on, someone who is quite notorious in the world, uh, Ed Dames, Dr. Doom, right? Yeah. He joined us uh, on temporary duty. Another organization wanted him to get the training. And so he was not part of our organization, but he joined us for for that training. So Every single person I've talked to, I don't know about you, but um, because I don't know how how much dirt you want to dish, but every, and this was actually, I guess it was private. Every single person I've talked to, including Morehouse, all had stories about Ed Dames and his, uh, his credentials and what he'd done with them. And, you know, the, the best one I heard, and I'm sure this won't even get back to Dames because he's heard it before was that um, he used to, he used to subscribe to science journals and read them. And there would be stuff that the public wouldn't hear about for months or years. And he'd make a prediction. And of course, every once in a while it would come true because he read it in a science journal. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, he, yeah. He, uh, let's think. So what was it? New scientist. I think he subscribed to that. And I noticed more than once when he'd get up on Art Bell coast to coast, you know, whoever he'd talk about, well, the, you know, the frogs are going to die because of X, Y, Z. And I noticed that the week before there'd been an article about dying frogs and, in the new t- new scientist, you know, yeah. so yeah, I'm not going to say he fabricated all that stuff, but D- Dames, of course, is as I said, notorious. Uh, people love to listen to him; he's very entertaining. He is, but um, I've been editing shows with him in them. Okay, old ones yes. from the '90s. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, yeah, I I don't I want to be careful about that's okay know, talking, talking trash about other viewers, but. You know, every once in a while, maybe it's necessary, but probably not right now. So it's okay. I mean, that that just came up in my mind thinking about yeah. about Dames when you said he was one of the people that was uh, brought in from another unit for a yeah. little while. Um, and he apparently he learned it. I don't know if I don't know how good he was at it, but he he did. The the they never used him in his old organization. He ended up coming over about let's see, December eighty four to. Yeah, about a year and some change later, he came over and actually became a member of the unit for just shy of three years. Oh, okay. And uh, that's yeah, a good chunk of time. Years. Yeah, yeah. But they brought him in uh, to act as a project manager and a and a, and a monitor. Monitor is a person who sits in with the viewer and helps right. keep them on track. Um, and he didn't do a lot of remote viewing there. Uh, he did do. I think I've been able to track down nine operational sessions he did i mean mm-hmm. you know you're talking uh, you know other folks did hundreds or sometimes even thousands yeah so he, he didn't have a very big footprint when it came to doing the actual remote viewing um and, and there's a lot of interesting stories anybody want to read some of those they can look at my uh, book uh, reading the enemy's mind i i talk about all our interactions and stuff in that book and, okay well yeah. i i will read that book um 
uh, I th- some of these other things I got from talking to you and looking at uh, the uh, uh, remote viewing. Um, what's the name of your company? Remote um, remote viewing instructional services site. Um, you said that. Uh, well, maybe this is when we were talking, but I heard a story that when uh, you you had an advocate in the in the Pentagon, General Stubblebine, right? Mm. And he left in 1985, and they were thinking of um, terminating the program. Um, I can't remember who told me this, but one of the other viewers said, and maybe you can confirm it or, or you know, uh, disabuse me of it. He said someone showed up at this meeting where they were saying, are we going to keep this, the RV program? And all the votes were no. And somebody walked in and he was like the smoking man, I guess, from, from, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, X-Files. But anyway, a guy, I guess, in a Navy peacoat or something walked in smoking and he said the program stays and he walked out and he outvoted everybody. Yeah, that's mythology. Oh, okay. Good. That never happened. No. So so the, the actual story. So Stubblebine was both a blessing and a curse to the program. Mm-hmm. He's a blessing in that he was going to keep it no matter what the rest of the brass said. And there was one point where where uh, the, the DOD was going to cut off funding for the program because it was being funded through a different funding mechanism right and 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 the program was at in stubblebine's command it was called the in, uh, intelligence security command and he's, Com, so yeah. he was he was commanding general and uh and so they were going to cut off funding because they wanted to kill there was some deputy director up at dod that did, was opposed to it and uh and Stubblebine said okay we can cut off funding but i'm going to find it out of hide so in other words he took it out of his own operations budget and funded the program until Congress then restored funding later on. Mm-hmm. So, so he saved the program and he was very sympathetic to the process, but he's also a bit of a loose gun. One of the things he'd do is he'd go out and if anybody had any kind of psychic skills at all, or let's just say not even psychic skills necessarily because he never evaluated them, psychic, psychic proclivities, right? Or claims. Claims, yeah. He'd think, he'd think they would be great for the program. So they did bring in a palm reader once and uh, that, individual didn't last very long uh, didn't, didn't really <laughs> well they got able to go to through the clearance the and everything too and they don't know the military well, they protocol were, they so. were military personnel oh okay okay yeah they were military personnel in inscom so they could be brought in easily i see all right uh, so he wasn't that but, crazy <laughs> no no but he did get himself in trouble um so uh i don't know if you ever talked about monroe the monroe institute on your show no, haven't, uh, and I should have. And the only time I've talked about it really during an interview was with um, uh, uh, Joe McMonagle because he yeah. married um, um, uh, the, the the founder's daughter, Monroe's daughter. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Monroe Institute. I mean, it's the legitimate organization, uh, mm-hmm. and they do. Um, it's hard to explain what they do: consciousness training and consciousness experience. I guess using a binaural beat. So they play off, uh, you know, just off phase. Tones yeah. In to, each ear to, and it gets the, gets the hemispheres. Exactly. Talking to yeah. Other, I've right? heard those tapes. Yeah. Yeah. So but they do some other things that by army standards are kind of weird. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. And Stubblebine decided he wanted everybody in the INSCOM staff to go down there. So we're talking several hundred people yeah. and they set up this program and they had him going down there and, and, and I admire his initiative and it wasn't a bad thing to do, but he got, he got he got dinged for it. I blindsided, think. huh? I said dinged for it, but 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 how did he? Get well, blindsided? ultimately it was, but it was because of something happened. There was a uh, young lieutenant who had already been evaluated, and he wasn't supposed to go down there because he'd had some mental issues in his past. 
And um, there was an opening come open and somebody who didn't was organizing things and didn't realize he hadn't been vetted. And so he said, they, he said, it was the last minute thing I can go. And they said, okay. And they put him in. Right. And so then he went down and halfway through, he totally wigged out. He, he insinuated that he might cause physical harm to one of the trainers. Uh, He did some weird things. And so they, they bundled him up and took him back up to DC. And the next day, it's hard to tell what exactly happened, but it's like he walked into the INSCOM headquarters and, and according to the stories I heard, he was walking around without a shirt on painting the classified code names for this program on the wall <laughs> and doing just, just crazy things. He ended up being like, uh, you know, uh, sent off to the, the psych unit at, at Walter Reed for a while. And that's what got the attention of the brass, you know, here's the, well, that, you something. can't really hide that. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, he's doing this program that's essentially is off the books and then that happens and that's what did him in. Mm. So he ended up being not fired, but forced to retire in the mid eight, mid 84. Mm. And then they brought in a new general who obviously came in with marching orders to cancel the program. So he says, we are going to cancel the program, but what they had encountered on was that there are some Congress people who were interested in this thing. Ah. And DIA, which is the next tier up from INSCOM, yeah. said, we want it. They'd already been doing the, some, some administrative stuff. They wanted the whole program. Mm-hmm. And so our, the Army was essentially, wasn't forced. They were willing to get rid of it, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And they passed it on to DIA in 1986, early 1986. Um, yeah, but then, you guys were in, did they recruit from every armed service or just the Army? Just the army because that's the way the billets were. So so billets belonged to a service, mm-hmm. right? Now there was some talk about getting Air Force and Navy folks involved, uh, but it never got anywhere. The program wasn't really big enough anyway. I mean, yeah. at, at Smax, I think we had twelve slots and half of them were civilians. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, we went over to DIA, and the beauty of that was that my three years at Fort Meade were about up. And if you're an army officer, you don't hang around. They don't let you hang around for more than about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to DIA, the organization being transferred to DIA was just like starting my time all over again, uh-huh. working for an entirely different agency. And so it was like my time started all over again. So I got to spend seven years in the program. Is that longer than anyone? No, um, Skip Atwater was longer. Okay. And let me think. Um Seems like somebody else was. Uh, one of the civilians, I think, might have been. Lynn Buchanan, I think, had a few months on me. Uh-huh. He started later, but then he also was there until he retired. I got sent off to sent off to a war. So, oh, okay, uh, off to um, uh, Middle East. Yeah, Desert Storm. Uh huh. Yeah. The other thing they told me, I, I I truly do not remember who told me that story about the about this the thing being the uh, program being resurrected by one person. Yeah. Um, they said they were driving. So now this throws this into, into uh, doubt too. Um, he said they were driving to the Pentagon for this meeting and there was a big traffic jam and there was a sign there blinking. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. this. Um, I actually, it's in my book. Oh really? Okay. So yeah. either that you know it's a true it story. From, let me let me tell you the story. Yeah, straight. you tell okay. it because I'm not gonna. Yeah. There's so, some background so, that needs to be. Yeah. So uh, 
the one who told us the story was actually our commander at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Busby. Mm-hmm. Busby's a great guy. I just got to visit him uh, last spring, I guess it was. Um, anyway, he was going up to get the final decision from the general that had taken over from from, uh, from uh, Stubblebine. Yeah. And you have to understand that we we have each, the program had various nicknames. So there, there, there are code, so-called code words to allow you to talk about it in an unclassified way with anybody knowing about what you're talking about. So it started off as uh, Grill Flame. Right. And then it was Center Lane. So when I was there, it was Center Lane, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, this it is later the story. became Sunstreak and then Stargate ultimately. Yeah. But but so it, so the program at the time was called Center Lane, and, and the general was deciding, or he'd already decided, but he didn't tell us that. He was about to give us the, the decision. Um, and so Busby's driving across the Anacostia River Bridge there, uh, southeast D.C., and the lane's neck down and he looks up ahead and there's this big sign. It said center lane closed ahead. <laughs> and he took that as an omen. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, a, that's the story I, I, yep. I'd heard. I can't remember who it was from. It might've been McMonagall or Lynn or, yeah. or even Morehouse. I think I, I actually well, Joe was, interviewed Joe him, was gone by it. then. Uh-huh. Um, see, Lynn had just gotten there. Uh, Morehouse came much later. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe somebody else told it, or or maybe maybe Lynn or or Morehouse heard it from somebody else. I don't I don't know. Actually, Lynn, yeah, Lynn was there when it happened, so he might have. He might. Yeah, I might have heard it from him because yeah. I interviewed him in like '97 or something like that. I went out to his house and talked to him. We had dinner and we I did an interview, but I think okay. that might have been who I heard that story from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, David had another story from you, uh, 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 to, another question to ask, um, because he's very hot on Ingo right now. And I want, he said, do you have, what can we learn or remember from Ingo Swan in the current atmosphere and cultural climate around, around uh, the subject? I mean, because he developed a lot of this stuff and for the public, he's basically forgotten. He's not, he's never really mentioned. Um, well, but, so how long are we going to be on for? As long as you can stand it. Um, okay. Well, usually we're getting, anywhere then from, we're not going to get that question answered, but, but let me be a well, little clearer on it. Um, whittle it down. What, <laughs> yeah. What, what can we learn from Ingo and his thoughts on what remote viewing, the current state of society? No, or, no. How did he mean it? How can, uh, I think what he meant was he believes that Ingo's work and his thought and his, you know, and, and what he did for the program is still relevant now. Um, yeah. And, but people don't remember that, that, you know, yeah. Ingo developed all this stuff or a lot of it. Yeah. And um, I think almost as a tribute to Ingo is what do we remember from Ingo at this point? That's yeah. still living. And I, I would, I would, I would say the whole thing actually. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, the whole thing, um, but I think let me let me just pull out some tidbits here. Okay. Mm-hmm. But first I want to give a caveat. Yep. We're in a bit of a sorry state because there are lots of people out there who uh, think they know what remote viewing is and then proceed to embellish and, and whatever. And there are other people who know what it is, but they want to put their own stamp on it. And so they're embellishing and fantasizing and speculating and stuff. One of the big problems is people will say that Ingo said or claimed something that he never actually said or claimed. And you understand that. That happens uh, historically quite often. So one has to, to be me. careful. 
<laughs> yeah, it probably happens to you all the time, right? You wrote this. Like, no, I never did. Uh, yeah, that yeah, must yeah, have been you something yeah. you thought I wrote, and then it became reality for you. I don't yeah, or know. something they wished you'd wrote. I guess. Written. Yeah. So uh, there are people who can cl- you know, claim things about Ingo Swan that aren't true and know mm-hmm. that they're not true. In fact, I have to tell you a story about Ed Dames. I'll get around to your, your question here in a minute. So um, we were doing, and I want to say it was 2004, we were doing, uh, the International Remote Viewing Association was doing one of its annual conferences in Vegas, and um, Ingo was our keynote, right? So we had him coming, he's doing a night, a, a night speech, and it was quite... Um, it was quite interesting, a lot of fun. And, and But at the same time, Dames was running a one of his workshops in town as well. And there was this married couple who, they wanted to do both, but they couldn't do both. So they decided one would go to Dames' thing, and the <laughs> other would come to the Irva thing, right? And so it was the wife, I think, that was at Dames' thing. And, and the husband, um, so Dames had told the group, somebody had asked the group that day, uh, said or asked Dames, from the group had asked Dames, said, well, Whatever happened to Ingo Swan? And uh, Dame said, "Oh, it's too bad he died. Right? <laughs> yeah, he died." And so um, that afternoon, after the most of the things were done at the Irva conference, this guy comes over to get his wife, and he said to the class, "Hey, everybody, Irva has Ingo Swan uh, speaking tonight at their conference, and it's open. Anybody who wants to come is twenty bucks." And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get any feedback as to how they reacted to that or what Dame said or, or didn't say, right? <laughs> but Ingo later on, in fact, I think it was that very talk because he got wind of the story. Yeah. He said um, something about, uh, you know, that, and this is a quote from somebody else, but rumors of my death are great, greatly exaggerated <laughs> or something. Or he said, um, I, people are saying I'm dead. Well, I'm, I've been reincarnated or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, okay. So the first thing in terms of, of remote viewing, one of the most important contributions Ingo Swan made was recognizing this, this feature called mental noise and coming up with ways of, of, of at least ameliorating of, of, of dealing with it. Right. So yeah. mental noise is when you're, anytime you're trying to do something psychic, your left brain wants to give you the answers, even though it doesn't have enough. Yeah. Information. It'll jump to a conclusion. Yes. And it will provide you all kinds of nonsense. And, and you have to understand when I use the terms left brain, and right brain, I'm doing it out of convenience. Obviously the, the neurological story is way more complicated than that. Right. Yeah. But, but it, left it, brain, it, right brain are good general yeah, simplified uh, way yes. to think about yeah. the creative and the analytical uh, parts yeah. of your brain. Yeah. Yes. So um, your left brain is always trying to figure it out. And it comes up all these fantastic stories. They aren't fantastic even. Um, one example, for example, let's say you the target's the Eiffel Tower. Viewers have to be blind to the target. They yeah. are not supposed to know what the target is. And their subconscious does all the work. So let's say it's the Eiffel Tower and you get some partial information and you perceive this crisscrossing metal girders. Well, left brain doesn't know what the target is. It's This is mostly a right brain resonant function. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it starts saying, well, what do I know that's got mental girders? Oh, I know. It's the bridge we crossed last summer, right? Yeah. And so it says the target is a bridge. Well, obviously, the target isn't a bridge. It screams at you. I've sort of, it, it, yeah, yeah, I've sort of experienced this. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's a fairly obvious one, and it's not too bad, but oftentimes the, this, these conjectures and these guesses and stuff that the left brain presents 
are totally wrong, right? And the thing is, this is present in any kind of psychic modality. Um, and one of the reasons psychics have such a bad reputation in the mainstream is because they often don't know about mental noise. They just think whatever comes into their heads is right. Now, they may actually get correct information, but they oftentimes haven't learned to be able to sort out the correct information from this mental noise stuff. And so they end up with this mix, so they're sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Yeah, and they often don't have um, the feedback, which is part of that loop you need. Yes. So um, so Ingo realized, now he, he, he got some insights from previous researchers like René Warcollier, who was a French researcher, yeah. uh, Saint, uh, Upton Sinclair, some of these other folks who'd done yeah, earlier. Mental, mental Radio. I have that Yes. Book. It's a very interesting yeah, book. Yeah, it's, it's a good book. Um, and so he built on those, the, the shoulders of those giants, became a giant himself, um, realized this, the effect of mental noise. And came up with a with mechanisms to how to deal with those. He can't get rid of it altogether, but he was able to help make it better. And that was that's a crucial piece to this. Um, so that was one thing. Um, it's like a just guru teaching teaching you to meditate properly. Like Ingo, you mean, or just in general? No, Ingo is like a guru teaching yeah. you how to meditate properly, yeah. so you, you don't lose your concentration. Yeah, although this is of course when a much more um, I just want to say scientific uh, format, right? Uh, it, it, so this was a science, the gurus, the art, and right. ego kind of mixed art and science, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, so left that was and right really, brain, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So that was one really big thing. Uh, he um, he kind of he came up with this structure, this process, which is what CRV is. And people say, well, that's so complicated, you know. Well, they don't understand the point of that. The point isn't isn't that it's complicated. The point is that it gives the left brain something to do that it's good at, and it serves as a distraction. That's one of the functions it does. Another thing, this whole structure process, you know, this format that you use, it makes it easier to unload your information so you don't lose it, right? The fact is, there, there's this famous paper, uh, seven bits plus or minus two or something like that. I forget it was from the fifties on information theory and, and working memory in humans, you know, our short-term memory. Hmm. The fact is that we can only hold so much in our heads at a given time. And unless we either move it to long-term memory or do something else with it, we lose it. Right. Well, this whole process that he introduced in his controlled remote viewing format with, with Hal helping um, is a just a just ingenious way of helping that not happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, I mean, it takes some learning, just like any other complex system does, but it has has a lot of value that people tend to reject because they're lazy, largely, I think. They want to do the stream of consciousness psychic stuff. And unfortunately, that approach invites all the problems that Ingo was trying to solve in creating this structured format of CRV. Yeah, to keep the, as you called it, uh, as it became known as the keep the signal line open. Well, it helps it helps manage it in a way that is going to maximize the accuracy and the data and minimize the noise and the mistaken conclusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's a really stupid question. You hear oh, all is it from David also? No, no. David has smart questions. I, know, I come I up with the dumb questions. Yeah. Well, I uh, just wanted to say that for his benefit. <laughs> um, 
everywhere you go, you see coordinate, controlled, associative, and a few other terms. And to me, that seems like it's interchangeable depending on he's, who's using the terms. Um, well, and then, you know, whoever wants to teach whatever class they have, we're saying, I'm teaching, you know, coordinate, co co uh, co coordinate remote viewing. I'm teaching associative remote viewing. I'm teaching whatever it is. Yeah. So um, we call them XRVs, right? X for whatever right? <laughs> you put in there. Uh, and this actually goes back to the problem I was talking about before. There, there's actually two things going on here. The first one is that people come along, they see that the niche for the actual remote viewing methodologies are filled. And so they want to hang out their shingle in some way that distinguishes them from somebody else. So they either take the old approach and tweak it in some way that makes it makes it theirs, puts their brand on it, or they come up with something altogether new because they're they think based on their experience and background that it's just as good. Okay, um, the fact is, um, you end up with about a zillion different kinds of remote viewing, um, and and the point to recall is that not everyone is good as others. In other words, just like anything, when there's multiple approaches to there are going to be some that are better and there's going to be some that are worse. The problem is that a lot of these newly introduced ones have actually never been tested in a science environment. And so you just have to rely on the claims of the inventor as to whether it's any better than anything else. Right. Um, and, and a lot of folks will take that particular class and say, well, this is the best. This is absolutely the best. Well, they never tried any of the others. They don't know. Well, they paid for it. It has to be the best, right? <laughs> that's that's a problem and, and you know i'm not saying that's not a problem i uh i feel kind of blessed in that many of my students have taken a lot of different courses not mm -hmm. just mine and by far the vast majority of them come back and say all right this is the right approach and of course it is because i try and keep it as close to ego approach as possible this is not one i made up mm -hmm. i'm not mm -hmm. claiming that i've that i've created my own highly superior method i do what ingo taught me and my and my associates to do and they all pretty much endorse it i mean i've had tom mcnair in fact he just last week i had him helping me with the class i've had bill ray out helping me with the class charlene isn't in the field so anymore she's retired so to speak so mm -hmm. she doesn't but I've, I've had them help you know both of them and both of them are quite comfortable with approach being correct mm -hmm. so um they have to be so i'm not saying this is something i invented i'm just trying to preserve it and and you've got all these different branches and stuff and people inventing stuff and all that which uh, if somebody comes up with a better method, I'm happy for that. But so far, and I know a lot about this field, yeah. I have yet to see one that's better and most of them aren't even as good. So, you know, whatever. But that's not the whole question. The other problem with all the XRVs mm -hmm. is that they aren't necessarily the same thing. So the, probably the three major things to talk about are CRV, which I do, mm -hmm. um, and then there's a spinoffs like SRV, which is Courtney Brown. Uh, I just blanked on the name of his organization. Uh, front Farsight. Uh, Farsight. Farsight. Frontsight is a firearms training company. <laughs> Farsight's what Ingo Swan does, right? So, yeah, Ingo Swan and Farsight, they've got, he's got SRV, which is a derivative of a derivative of Ingo CRV. Mm -hmm. uh, Dames for a long time did TRV until he lost the, the, intellectual property trademark to it due to we won't, we won't get into that gossip yeah. um, and but arv is actually not a kind of remote viewing arv is a way of applying remote viewing that you can use any kind of remote viewing for mm. okay it's just a way of applying it and then there's erv which is extended remote viewing and that is more of a 
well, you, what you do is you get into a um, hypnagogic state, mind awake, body asleep. So you're usually laying down on the verge of sleep and then you remote view in that mode. So, so, you know, there's, there's the XRVs that are just stuff people made up. There is the uh, ARV, which is a means of using remote viewing. And then there's ERV, which is a, a standalone process that Skip Atwater, uh, if some people know him, Fred Atwater, Skip Atwater, mm -hmm. developed when he was running the training and the operations at the Fort Meade remote viewing program. Yeah. I had a question actually about non-feedback situations. Because there's uh, been remote, you know, of the far side of the moon and UFOs and all that. Mm -hmm. What do you? What is your opinion? What is your feeling when there's when there's not a feedback loop there, and how useful is that information, or how useful has it been? So there's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me start off with feedback. The idea of feedback is uh, when you're done with your session, you can actually verify whether the stuff you got is correct yeah, I'm, I'm sorry paul I, what i'm doing is i'm assuming that most people listening to this have a basic understanding of what remote yeah. viewing is and sort of of the history of it yeah so if i so, seem ignorant in parts of it um is that an assumption or is that just a hope <laughs> well it's both i mean i've told people i do this show mainly for myself and if other people yeah. are, enjoy it then it's wonderful and that okay, you know what the, the best things that you see or hear or whatever seem to be that where the person is just trying to make themselves happy <laughs> yeah so yeah. that's what i'm doing so okay, you don't well, have to I, do I, background too much but yeah i mean well, if you, as much as you I'm want to. to because it helps to understand all right so, no 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 go right ahead it's yeah. all right so feedback is is uh to confirm uh the to the viewer that what they remote viewed was accurate or inaccurate and the reason for that first of all obviously without feedback you don't learn anything because you don't know whether what you did actually was any good or not right so feedback is very important in a training environment ingo and of course hal and the others um but ingo was adamant that if there's no feedback available or possible then it's not really remote viewing feedback is part of the protocol mm -hmm. okay um didn't mean you didn't non do non-feedbackable targets, but but feedback is is one of the requirements for something to really be remote viewing. Yeah. Other if you don't have that, then I'm not sure what you call it. It is process-wise still remote viewing. Okay. Yeah. Now I think a lot of them did it for fun too, just to mess around, just to oh, see. Oh, that's what it, most of them are doing it for yeah, now, right? Yeah. yeah. They want to see where Bigfoot is, so they remote view him, you yeah. know, and they may or may not get him, right? That's not feedbackable, right? Yeah. So um Operational remote viewing is often in principle feedbackable, but not because, you know, if you're trying to find the murderer and they never find him, then you don't know if your information was accurate or not, because it's possible you accurately described where he was, but At by the time. the time they got there, he was gone, right? So you'll yeah. never know. Gail Husick told me about one of those actually yes. a couple years ago. Yeah. Yes. There's plenty of those kind of examples. And, and I would say of the operational work that we did at Fort Meade, we only got feedback on about 10% of it. Okay. Because so, you weren't allowed to, you weren't cleared were, for it. Well, there's lots of reasons for that. One is some of it was too high classified even for us to know about. Mm -hmm. Some of it was, um, they just, you know, once, once the intelligence, uh, collector or, uh, analyst is done with what he got the information in, then he's on to the next project and he yeah. doesn't get around to feedback. Right. Right. So that's some of that happened. And, uh, and sometimes they just didn't have a resolution on it before we left. You know, because mm -hmm. you can do an operation and and you provide legitimate information, but they don't actually close the case, you know, speak generally. Right. Um, it was just a, it was a right. it was a tool. 
Yeah. Okay. So, but not the only. Let's one. go to the non-feedbackable. So yeah. it's quite popular these days. Remote view UFO incidents, the far side of the moon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Mars, um, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Much of that is non-feedbackable. Not only is it not currently feedbackable, it will be never be feedbackable. Yeah. And so, what's the value in that? Well the main value from an actual doing something about it perspective, it's of no value at all. Right. <laughs> um, in some cases, maybe it will tip off people. You know, if it's a legitimately done project, there's a lot of these that are done front loaded and just ad hoc and, and, and they don't know for sure if there's an actually there, there, they just hear a, a, a rumor about something that happened, they'll remote view it. And it'll turn out maybe later and nothing ha actually happened. You're remote viewing nothing. Right. Yeah. So, um, there's all those kind of things. Uh, it is possible to do, I call these anomaly targets, right? It is possible to do an anomaly target in a responsible way and maybe develop information that's useful. You know, it, it, it's it's possible, but, but you can't count on the data you get until you have something to confirm it. And you'll get people who are remote view the Pleiades or whatever, and they'll come back with all these stories about reptilians or whatever, you know, that they've remote viewed and all that. Well, you don't know if that's fantasy or real. You have absolutely no reason to believe that's true. And yet people will do a remote viewing and they'll be absolutely sure that what they got was right. So an example of this is Ed Dames. When we were at Fort Meade, I used to joke that Ed Dames, if he got half a fact, would jump, jump to a conclusion. He's very left brain, right? Mm -hmm. um, he would uh, do the work during the day and then he'd go home and he'd remote view at two in the morning before he came into work the next day. One of those things was the Supreme Galactic Council. I'm not sure that's exactly what he called it, but one day he came in and said, well, I was remote viewing the Supreme Galactic Council last night. And, and you know, and he talked about that. Well, he would oftentimes run us on those things he'd remote viewed. And so we got really angry because we there were things you could not possibly get feedback on. Let's say there really is a Supreme Galactic Council. We won't know about it for millennia, right? There's no way you can know about the Supreme Galactic Council unless they come to visit, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so he'd come in, he'd remote, he'd, we thought we were doing an operational tasking or a training target, and he would target us on the Supreme Galactic Council, you know, <laughs> and, and we'd get done and we'd say, Ed, this is you. So, what do you think we throw down the table? You don't get mad at him. Um, I won't say we, we did that very often, but we were, we were not happy with that. Now, it is kind of fun to go back and look at that stuff today and, and see what we did come up with. And, and of course, people really get excited about the Supreme Galactic Council. Every once in a while, it comes up as a topic in all the Facebook remote viewing groups, and everybody goes nuts about it and all that. But it's not feedbackable. You don't learn anything from it. You can't verify it. And the odds are high that it's largely fantasy. So yeah, and if yeah. something comes up for it later, then it could just be a left brain post hoc kind of thing, yeah. where you say I was right. It's like, well, you the way a stop clock is right, I suppose you were right. Yeah, and that's true. I say that about some folks out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, and I read part of uh, your doctoral thesis, mm -hmm. which was a. Um, uh, I'll read my question. It was an argument against physicalism or materialism, and as known as it's known to the listeners, I guess you would say. Um, yeah, what were your arguments, uh, and what are the implications if we do not live in a purely physical universe? Because I mean that you you said at the end. I mean, the, the basically the, the premise of the thing was here is a mountain of evidence that physicalism that throws physicalism into doubt. 
yeah. you used um, stuff from, uh, I mean, because I think Hal and Jessica Utz were on your, your committee, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you used uh, information and, and data from their, uh, from their analyses and from their, um, from their experiments and stuff you'd gone through, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, maybe you can explain a little bit better than yeah, I have. So, so our current, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry if I'm hitting it with a giant sledgehammer when you were a lot more subtle than this. <laughs> well, this is – no, that's, that's not a bad representation of it, but uh, this is yet – we could do a whole interview just on this, but yeah, I know. I'll I mean, try and summarize here. 120 summarize. page so, uh, uh, dissertation. So is actually longer than that is 400 something. But, oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, some of that was bibliography, but still it was, it was, it was book length easy. Yeah. So um, physicalism is this doctrine that everything in the universe is physical or a consequence of physical facts. Yeah. So for example, you know, I have a book on the table there that's physical, right? Um, uh, the way the planets move, that's physical. Uh, quantum physics is a physical thing, right? Uh, but in not everything way, yeah. in quantum physics is tangible, right? So, and there are things in our in our world that are not physical, but ha- can only exist if, if things are all physical. For example, history, the concept of history, that's not a physical thing. You can't point to a, here's a history right here. Yeah, yeah. here, grab a, grab a cup full of history. You know, you can't do that. Yeah. But it's- history itself is essentially a way of thinking about interactions on the planet. And yeah. so it is made up of physical things, but history in itself physical is Physical things that are turned into information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But derived so, from um, physical things, yeah. Yeah. So our whole Western civilization and culture and, and most of the world's culture is based on physicalism. Now, most, I don't say most, but a large percentage of people aren't physicalists they believe that the world is physical but they believe there's believe there's this other part whether you want to call it a spiritual realm or or whatever right um but science and and culture itself is pretty much locked into this idea that everything is physical and it makes decisions based on the physical premise but see the problem is if if everything really is physical that means it's ultimately deterministic or totally random one or the other it's not both uh, or it's not somewhere in between and either way, you lose things like free will. You lose the notion of God. Now, I'm not saying you got to believe God exists, but if physicalism is true, God doesn't exist. Okay, right. Um, you lose what well, you lose free will. Uh, God, you lose anything spiritual except in a kind of a wishy-washy way of thinking about spiritual. Um, you lose all of these different things. Right. There's there's a bunch more I list them in, in my introduction. Um, and if the world is physical, then those are consequences we have to face and accept. But but we want to, the, their physicalists want to jump on the train and say, well, it is all physical, so just throw that stuff away. But yeah. I say, wait a minute. <laughs> you don't know it's all physical. You're assuming it is all physical. And they'll say, well, what else could it be? I said, that's not a very good answer, is it? Just because you don't know what else it could be doesn't mean that you're right. Yeah, that's, that's it's either an epiphenomenon of physicality or it's false. Yeah. That's that's the that's the line, I think. Yeah. So the problem with physicalism is that it isn't actually a scientific premise. It's a metaphysical one. The statement that everything is physical is a metaphysical position. And metaphysics, and I'm not talking about metaphysics in the way of people like think psychic is metaphysical. 
metaphysics is actually a, a concrete term in philosophy and science, which mm-hmm. means has to do with what exists, what doesn't exist, ontology, which is study of what is real, right? Mm-hmm. And so the physical claim, physicalist claim, is a metaphysical claim. And notoriously, you can't prove metaphysical claims because they have to do with the level of existence we can't even access yeah. and can't you, even You can't bring it in science. a lab and repeat it and all that. Exactly. So physicalism is based on an assumption. The assumption is that the that the physical domain is closed. What that means is this physical world we're in, uh, closed in a causal way. So no causes can come from come from outside the physical domain into the physical domain. No causes can go from inside the physical domain outside of it and come back in somewhere else. Okay. Yep. And but they can't prove that. That's an assumption. Mm-hmm. And so. The assumption can stand because it's based on it's based on a thing called called them the abduction. Don't worry about that name. It's essentially what Sherlock Holmes did. You reason to the most most probable conclusion. Yeah. Okay. And, and so if you just look at the physical world and you look at science, your logical conclusion it's not actually logical, reasonable. Uh, it's actually a logical fallacy. But we won't get into that, right? So then your your deduction your your conclusion is going to be well if everything we've investigated is physical therefore everything else we'll ever find is physical as well but then the problem is if you come in with something that doesn't seem to fit any of the physical rules that would be non-physical uh, at least a, a based on what we know and so then the argument is well that either that's not real or it's physical we just haven't discovered how it's physical yet right and so that's where they go. It's it, it's often called promissory physicalism because the promise is, <laughs> the promise is well, if we don't know it's physical yet, eventually we'll know it's physical, right? Yeah. So now here's the problem, of course. Uh, again, you get into this idea is if it's all physical, then we throw a lot of things that are important in human nature out. Yeah. Um, so, um, not to mention RV. Like, <laughs> again, like our, like RV. I said not to mention RV. Oh, not to mention RV, yeah. I mean, you so, said belief uh, in God and and, yeah. and and spirits and ancestor worship and whatever, all, all these yeah. metaphysical yeah. ideas. And some of that may be false, but yeah. we don't know what's false. Uh, physicalists claim we know it, but they don't. So so it's based on an induction. And what an induction is, is it, it's the old white crow thing. Let's say swans. Swans is better. It's only white swan thing. All swans are white. How do you know that? Well, I've never seen a black swan, right? This swan is white. This swan is white. This swan is white. This swan is white. Therefore, all of those swans are white, right? Even the ones well, I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, and even the ones you haven't seen, and and that's an induction. It's yeah. not de- deduction. It's yeah. not logic. It's in, it's in, it's, in du- it's inductive reasoning, not deductive. Yeah. Yes, and and the thing is, it's actually logical. It's a logical fallacy, right? Right. So, but that's what most of the science is based on. Is what we've seen over and over and over again. Therefore, yeah. we conclude, extend that to the rest yeah. of the and class. And some of right? them are fairly robust. Yes. <laughs> so, for example, white swans. Yeah. But here's a problem. When they discovered Australia, they discovered a variety of swans that were black. <laughs> and they are swan species. They can interbreed with the white swans. I don't know if you get gray swans or what, but but uh, <laughs> polka dotted, but, whatever. So that proved that that induction that all swans are white was actually false. Mm-hmm. So you can do the same thing with physicalism. Um, you know, it, it, presumably, I mean, because physicalism is based on an induction about the physical world. If you can come up with something that shows that everything isn't physical, then you totally destroy that whole argument, right? 
And so my affecting a random to, number generator. I'm sorry. Like if affecting a random number generator on a consistent basis. Oh, mentally. Yes. Yeah. 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 If it was and, pure and physical, fact, it should be 50, 50 if the thing is pro functioning properly. Yes. Uh, well, uh, and yeah. So, so what I did I'm, was I'm broad I strokes. With, I, I'm a dummy. So. Yes. <laughs> well, you yeah, that's all I did. Right. So, um, all I did was come up with an induction with a, uh, with counterexamples of the induction. And those included, I picked, I picked four. There's actually numerous different uh, research paradigms in parapsychology that you could uh, reference, but I picked the ones that are easy for me. I did remote viewing, uh, associated remote viewing, uh, DMILS, uh, direct mental interaction with living systems. And okay, there was a fourth one. I'm blanking. What was my fourth one? Um, ARV, uh, RV, ARV, DMILS. Oh, and presentiment. Oh, that's and right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if those effects are true, then they seriously introduce a possibility of of a cause that goes from inside the physical domain, outside the physical domain, and back inside. So the reason that whole cause or closure argument uh, exists is because the physicalists say the reason you can't have causes come from the outside or causes go from the outside and back into the inside is because there is no outside. Right. There is nothing that isn't physical. There, there, it's but, that one dimension of physicalism. Yeah. Yeah. But if these effects are real, they they seem to be very strong evidences of causal change that go outside mm -hmm. and come back in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was my argument. And in fact, the evidence for these is really strong when you put them all together. Yeah. Uh, very strong that there's a real effect there, which means physicalism is a very dubious proposition. Yeah, but they don't know that yet. Their 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 model of the universe is already dead, and they don't even know it. That's what <laughs> it boils down to. Yeah, when I was uh, reading uh, bits of it and your and the and the and the abstract, I did not. I could not figure out whether you were saying physicalism if 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 you can disprove physicalism if it's completely false, mm -hmm. or it's just partially true, or it's an epiphenomenon of non-physicalism. Okay, if that so make, it makes any sense, the facts that the fact that that there are physical things in the universe is true. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, unless you're an idealist, and then all bets are off. Or yeah, you exactly. think it's all simulation, right? Yeah, but yeah. we won't consider that. So, um, yeah. So the fact that there there is a part of the universe that's physical is absolutely true. The problem is when you make it a generalized statement where you say all of the universe is, is physical. That has never been proved, and probably in principle could never be proved. Mm -hmm. But you can prove it wrong. If you identify something that is non-physical, uh, yeah, then the, you prove that the statement, the general statement is false. Yeah, the black swan part of it. Yeah. yeah. So my argument ultimately said, I can't prove physicalism is false because that would mean examining everything in the universe. And <laughs> we don't have the, the capability of doing that and probably never will, right? Yeah. Um, but I'll throw a great deal of so doubt, doubt on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I can so doubt, I can make it doubtful. In fact, not just a little doubtful, but highly doubtful that physicalism is true. And yeah. so that's what I did. Yeah. And I will put links to, you know, the paper and other things on the, on the interview when I post it. Um, oh, here's something I noticed when I was, uh, I, I think this was part of what you wrote. The, the CRV model of remote viewing uses terminology that's derived from radio wave propagation. 
How did you find that this was the best model that produced the best results? I mean, did it include well, enough that it worked as a, you know, as a, as a model? Yeah. So, so it's not, even if that's not metaphor. what's going on, but as a model. Yeah. 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 It's a metaphor. Right. Right. A model metaphor. Yeah, sorry. It's a metaphor. And I didn't come up with it. I think it was Swan stuff. Right. Okay. Swan talked about the signaling. No, he didn't talk about signal for things I won't go into here because I've already been talking too much. But he didn't talk about signal because there's a problem with that term. Call it the signal line is kind of a little bit of a hand wave to say that there is this contentful sequence of information that comes into your mind. It's a way to conceptualize it so you can get your mind around what you need to do with it. And, 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 you know, we do talk a little bit in, in uh, radio propagation terms because that's what we understand in our culture to be action at a distance. You know, information mm-hmm. at a distance is through the radio, the broadcast, the waves and everything. But I also caution my students, I'm going to use this model because it's the only way we can really talk about it make any sense. I'm going to use this model. But, in fact, one thing we absolutely know, there is no electromagnetic component in remote viewing. Yeah. Or in psychic in general. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to caveat, actually, our brains are electromagnetic. And because the signal is processed by certain parts of our brain, then there is that. But the actual, the actual, I don't want to say transmission, because that's the wrong word, too. But the actual information, information, how it gets into your brain uh, and transfers into your mind, you know, however we want to talk about that, that is not, that's been proven pretty much convincingly to be non-electromagnetic it does yeah. not involve any known mechanism Yeah, because they put people in faraday cages and all that it makes no difference yeah. Yeah. and it's submarines on the bottom of the ocean and that's right and or in space well i guess you could propagate radio waves through space yeah they still. go through space all the time but yeah, yeah. i was thinking of um ed mitchell's um uh, yeah. test His when he was in apollo 14 yeah, yeah. um the, there's another uh, thing of terminology that i notice are there better, better models of RV functioning that are not so closely related to Freudian theory? Like, could you use Jung or Skinner or Maslow or something like that to, to um, inform RV functioning? Because, you know, you deal with conscious and subconscious and your ego. That's a Freudian model. Is yeah. that because most people are used to that or is that because it was the most useful for the program? Well, that's a good question. Um, and In fact, there's a lot of more to be found out about this. Um, and we didn't do it well. Skinnerian uh, theory on this is, is useless. Basically. Yeah, I, I shouldn't even have yeah. included that. When I saw that, I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and the others, I don't know. Um, it's not, I mean, it's kind of a, a fluid or weak kind of Freudian version anyway. I mean, the idea is that there are parts of our, our minds that we don't have access to and they inform the other parts of our mind in some way. So, um, so is there a better model? Probably once we know more enough about the mind, but, but there isn't, but it would only be an inter- interestingly better model. It wouldn't be necessarily a functionally better model because this works perfectly well. Mm-hmm. The only, the only purpose to it is help give people somehow to think about this so that they have kind of are able to, it's a sense making kind of a thing. Yeah. But I'm always careful to caution them that I don't take this too seriously or too literally. It just reasonably describes what the experience is in, in acquiring information through this non-local channel and, and objectifying it and providing it, giving it a use. 
Yeah, the whole time you were saying this, uh, explaining this to me, I was thinking of Robert Anton Wilson's thing about the map is not the territory. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, that's, we're, that's we're, an excellent. Yeah, yeah we're speaking in metaphors all the time to various degrees, and sometimes it's more, you know, the sometimes a metaphor is more of a metaphor than it actually is what you're describing. But yeah, we we need, you know, we we have to we have to um, conceptualize things to be able to get a handle on them. Um, you do have uh, what what does uh, what kind of taskings do do you, does your company remote viewing instructional services? Well, that's not that's not the part where you get hired to do remote viewing, but that's where you instruct people. But you do do yeah. you you do perform taskings for various clients, right? Still, rarely, rarely, it, okay, it's very rare. I used to do it more often, but one thing to know about it is doing an operation. People think, oh, you just sit down and think, and then you come up with the answer, right? It's very time consuming, especially if you're the one doing the management. Yeah, I mean. I did a like monocle told me he had like a huge amount of envelopes with a whole bunch of taskings in them. And he didn't know which ones were the ones that he was going to yeah. use or not. Cause he couldn't, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, but yeah, but, but he, he just does viewing himself. And I think scooter, his wife manages the administrative side of it. Oh, okay. But when you do a full on remote viewing project where you have three to six viewers or more, um, you've got to task them. You've got to get the reports in. You've got to collate those. You've got to do reporting on it. You've got to create a uh, essentially, well, reports, you know, for the client. And, and you have to make sure all the trains run on time. And it's just massively time consuming. And I just can't afford that kind of time anymore. So I rarely do operational. Every once in a while I do this missing person when I, I you know, I, I got emotionally involved. <laughs> I felt sorry for the person, you know, and and so uh, the, the person who asked me about it, but and here's the problem. My viewers, I've had one respond so far. The other one said, yeah, 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 yeah. But they haven't given me their data. And this is a very time sensitive thing. You know? Yeah, so, of course it is. Cause somebody yeah. could die. So I did one on, uh, and this is all I'll tell you, it was a UAP target, uh, a one that I felt was responsibly introduced. It was uh, not at all anything fantastic about it. Uh, and by credible people, Let's just say there was a government connection, but not directly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I did do that project. I had four viewers on it, but it took me several weeks, you know, in, in the time I had it available uh, to get the data in, to task it out in the first place, to get the data in, to analyze it, to create the report and get it off to the client. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't have that kind of time. Um in fact, my philosophy here is I want to, if I'm going to spend time at all, I want to do a training and doing outreach. I'm, first of all, trying to get a responsible picture of remote viewing out there mm -hmm. in a way to confront all the sensationalism and fantasy that's being perpetrated in the remote viewing community now. Um, but I also, I mean, I could do remote viewing, but then when I retire or die or whatever, then that stops. My goal is to get people trained up who can carry on propagated after out, we yeah. the old guard are gone mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so i think that's a far more important thing to do than do one off operational kind of stuff i i can totally see that i mean it's it's a you know what do you think your the most uh, judicious use of your time is mm -hmm. i mean i'm i'm always thinking about that is this useful what i'm doing right now most of the time it's not so yeah. <laughs> but it is but it is uh, rewarding in one way or another <laughs> yeah right? exactly 
Um, no, do I really need to watch Stranger Things? No, I don't need to, but dang, I'm going to watch it <laughs> whenever it comes yeah, out. Yeah, right? somebody just made me watch Breaking Bad for the first time, and I didn't realize how good it was. I just like, yeah, 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 and now I'm all hooked on that, and I I got to fight the urge to go and waste time mm-hmm. and go do that. Binge watch, yeah, that's that's the enemy of commitment, yeah. binge watching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it, I think people in the entertainment industry realize that most people need time wasters. So, yeah. the, the, you know, and what better time wasters than to have a, t- a story told to you? Yeah. So I do have to say I'm probably running out of time here, speaking of time wasters. Okay. Um, well, I hope I didn't so, waste your time. No, no, I feel I, I feel like this is constructive, you know. Uh, I think that uh, – I see, this is part of my outreach mission. Right? Yeah. So I'll talk to – you know, if I can talk about remote viewing in a positive way and uh, and and – inform people in a responsible way then mm-hmm. that's not a waste of time as far as i'm concerned okay all right i um i had one more question it's a very throwaway okay. question um as you, you can tell all of mine are throwaway for about 10 minutes at a time anyway go ahead <laughs> <laughs> uh you teach quite a lot now is it pretty easy to tell in your classes who's going to excel or does it not really matter I mean, like you get a, what I, what I would envision it as is like, you're a baseball coach and you get like 10 kids Mm -hmm. and you start running them through exercises and you realize some can hit pretty well and some can field pretty well and some can do all of those things pretty well, but you have to pull them all up from nothing to something. Mm -hmm. Um, Is, is that a, is that a fair model of of, uh, what goes on in your classes? Yeah. um, And I mean, in a class, you can't necessarily tell who eventually became become a star performer mm-hmm. because there's a bunch of variables. There's when they get done with the class, where they go home and practice or whether their real life gets in the way and they never get back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it has to do with how well they do in the class. And generally, I find people who do well and go and stay engaged do well overall. Yeah, um, practice. Yeah, and I can tell some people struggle a lot. I've had a few people struggle. I like to joke that introverted electrical engineers are the worst people in the world to try and teach this to, but that's a joke. Extremely left-brained people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and that is really ultimately the problem. If they're so locked in their left brains, they really struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's helpful if they, even if they're left-brain oriented, if they develop some creative skill, like I, t- I talked about, creative activity, that yeah. actually can help a lot. An outlet, uh, yeah, because it, yeah. It's, yeah, it, it strengthens that muscle. And so you, it can fight the left brain a little easier. Yes, just yes. A, if it's, so, so generally, I have to say, I don't know who's going to excel, but I know who's got the potential to excel by the time a class is over. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, and even the ones who don't seem to have potential may still get there. You know, they yeah. may still get there. So I yeah. want to encourage them too. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, the quit willing. on a high thing. Like if you're doing something yeah. and you have a nice success, stop right there for a little while. So your brain yeah. has time to integrate what you did right, because a lot of yes. it is subconscious and, and subliminal. We call so. that assimilation. Yeah. You okay. We call it assimilation. Exactly. But yeah. Oh, he was adamant about quitting on a high. You know, yeah. Uh, well, so. he, he was smart. Well, uh, yeah. thank you for um, spending time, um, which I think was not wasted at all. Uh, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, let, let us please keep in touch and uh, hopefully I see you again at one of these conferences. I don't even know which one. I'm going to go to the SCU one, but I don't think you're interested in that kind of stuff. Well, uh, I just actually applied to be a member. I was invited to, 
to apply. And so, oh, good. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and we didn't even talk about that, uh, but they're, you know, they're I, a little left brain for me, but I also think they're doing a very valuable service. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I thought we'd go to that UAP stuff. I do have some. I was going to ask you, but you see, I didn't know if you wanted yeah, to talk about it. Let's save that for another interview now okay. that we've got All right. this far. All, All right. right. <laughs> but I'm happy to come back and talk to you anytime you want. Uh, well, maybe after the SCU conference. Yeah, maybe. I am probably not going there. That's in June, right? I think. Yeah, beginning July. of June. Yeah, yeah, in Huntsville. Yeah, and so you're in L.A. Irvis conference is going to be, uh, I think, around 21 July up in Palo Alto. Mm, okay. Yeah, the International Remote Viewing Association for anybody listening in. Um, up in Palo Alto, and I—it's a 50-year anniversary of remote viewing. Wow! So, when, definitely. What, um, what month is that? July, July. Oh, July! It's pretty soon. In, yeah, relatively. Yeah, kind of late, late getting this one off the off the ground. Well, but, everybody is for, for yeah, obvious it's reasons. Been rough. Yeah, it's been rough. So, yeah, so you know that'd be great too. Maybe, maybe you can put their their uh, link in in the notes as well or something. I don't know. I'll do Whatever that. you do, whatever you do. All right, so, Paul. Thank you so much. I let yeah. the I have outro music every time, and I let the guest pick it. Do you have any outro mu music you want to play after the interview is over? Ooh, well, let's see. I love "Give Me Shelter," but I actually used eight six seven five three zero nine in my uh, in my training. <laughs> uh, oh, and and I've just heard some Americana stuff. I really love. Oh no, I don't know. We were in the car, I, I and I played that Brian Eno song. You said, hey, this is pretty interesting, which I thought was one of the funniest things I heard that entire weekend at the AOI conference, that Paul oh, Smith, uh, re renowned remote viewer Paul Smith, likes Brian Eno's uh, oh. <laughs> Babies on Fire from the well, early you know, 70s. I, uh, I'm an aberration <laughs> when it comes to music. Here I am, almost 70. My, uh, my next youngest brother, um, who I grew up with, uh, he's locked in pretty much into the the 60s and 70s, you know, the classic rock stuff, which I don't mind listening to occasionally, but uh, but I, I like new stuff too, you know. So my taste runs all the way from early Stones all the way up through Three Doors Down and, and mm -hmm. a lot of Americana stuff like Civil Wars and all that. And uh, I just came across another one called uh, Paladine, uh, which is a, a, a gothic Americana group, you know, and Mm -hmm. I've got broad taste. I, I'm not really big into jazz or rap. That that stuff. Yeah, I'll listen to it every now and again. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so. Well, I'll, I, look, I'll look through some of that then. Okay, I guess uh, we're shutting down. I'll see you later, man. It was great. Okay, thanks so much, Paul. Talk to you soon. You betcha. Okay. Enjoy. Bye-bye.
succeed Follow his footsteps To a war that it bleeds Breaking the bone Falling among the justice of fame Forever strong Fading his soul That drives me insane Breaking the spell Forcing the right I have to know Stand to the ground Face the unknown War comes so far from the hills Sanity lost in the fire